BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and I'm thrilled to have a fellow Dartmouth alum who is an incredible developmental psychologist. Dr. Perez Edgar is a professor of psychology and is interested in the relations between temperament and psychopathology. In particular, she studies children with the extreme temperamental traits of behavioral inhibition and shyness and social anxiety. She's also really incredible at translating research to everyone. So I thought this is the perfect person to have explain temperament. Temperament is part of every decision that we make as parents because we have to think about not only our children's temperament, but also our own temperament and how that fits together. So today's episode, we are talking about temperament, how to support the child you have, and how to support kids with the temperament that they came into this world with. Please don't forget to sign up for DrAliza.Bulletin.com. I had a wonderful month with premium subscribers. We did our mindfulness and parenting class, and we will have lots of fun stuff over the summer. And of course, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review of the podcast. It always is so wonderful for me to see, and it helps put the podcast out there. Given that we're talking about change over time and who we are and how we come to be who we are, can you talk about temperament? And I mean, dig in from the beginning of the highway. (laughs) Sure. So when you think about temperament, it is not a new idea, right? You can go all the way back to ancient Greek doctors, uh, philosophy, where they talked about temperament and they used the language that they had at the time. So we can think about temperament as an individual's fairly stable across time, across place, way in which they approach the world, interact with the world, and present themselves to the world. Often the language that's used as temperament is the building block for personality. And so when you go back all the way back to the Greeks, you can think of Galen, who was a physician at the time. And that was his basic presentation. What are the people I see as I move around my environment? What are they like? They had stable personalities. And of course, he uses the language of his time. He called people, you know, phlegmatic, right? Or choleric. And then he tries to explain why is someone very irritable and another person almost always sunny, regardless of what happens, or someone is timid and the other person is bold. And he calls upon what he sees as natural underlying biological forces. And he calls them biles, right? Black bile and yellow bile. And he talks about different humors and that the combination of biles and humors will create these different types so that one person is phlegmatic and the other one's choleric. When we talk today as either developmental psychologists or child psychologists or psychiatrists, we don't use that language. We use the language of 
neurotransmitter, serotonin, dopamine. We don't talk about humors. We talk about hormones, cortisol. And in so the same way, we are recognizing that people tend to have stable ways of approaching, interacting, and presenting, and that we think it's associated with biology in some, to some extent, and that this is the language we use to explain that biological component. So temperament isn't new. Temperament did go almost underground, like cicadas for a while. And if you think about developmental psychology in the last hundred years, for a good portion of that time, what are the mechanisms of development? What determines the direction of development? A lot of the focus was on the environment, and rightly so. And a lot of the focus was on parenting, and rightly so. But it was the notion that if you shape the environment just so, and if parents behave in the just so way, they could guarantee or or greatly increase the odds that their children would end up just so. In the case of you know being in the United States in the middle of the 20th century, exuberant, bold, willing to go out and be risk takers, leading this great you know revolution of the American century. So that the timid, the shy, the reticent, those were people who must not have had the right support or the right foundations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes then, by implication, whether spoken or unspoken was, what did the parents do? Right? Totally. And we see that across different areas of concern. So, you know, I'm not sure... You know, when you talk about autism, there was this whole notion of icebox mothers. Mm -hmm. Moms must have done something to cause this autism. Childhood psychopathology, depression. What did the parents do? Or if we just fix the environment, let's remove the child to a better environment, right? So the, the notion of foster care and not for neglect, not for abuse, but for better environment. And some of that came out of the attachment literature, the work of Bowlby, uh, Mary Ainsworth, which was really in the ascendancy throughout the middle part of the 20th century, the 1950s, 1960s. And it is in the transition to the 70s that you start to see more conversation about temperament, that the child plays a role here, that you see children as early as infancy have very distinct profiles of reactivity. How do they respond to the world? Researchers and child psychologists like Thomas and Chucks talked about the difficult to soothe child, the fussy child, the positive child, that even regardless of where they came from and who the parents were, they were typically fussy. They were typically happy-go-lucky. And it's not because the parents did something particularly right or particularly wrong that the child is that way, but that this is who the child came into the world as, their makeup. One of the concerns about temperament, because it has that very specific refrain of being early appearing, stable over time, and biologically rooted, there is the uh, fear that what you're saying is that the child is predestined to be a certain way, that they are programmed genetically or biologically some way, and that it robs the child of the agency, that very agency that we thought some of this overly environmental approach robs the child of. So a lot of the early work starting in the 70s and into the 80s on temperament was to make that careful balance, to say that the child is important. The child helps determine their route, what what exits they take, why they take that exit, why they would rather head to Colorado rather than go to Maine, 
right? But that it's not predetermined and it's not unchangeable. And so there were the work of Dr. Jerome Kagan, the work of Dr. Mary Rothbart, showing this combination of what the child brings into the world and what the world brings to the child is important. Mm -hmm. And the way Jerry Kagan often talked about it as temperament, sort of as an envelope or a boundary. So that if you have a child who is a little shy, is a little reticent, shyer than his peers, more reticent than his peers, it does not mean that they're destined to be socially anxious, that they're destined to be painfully shy. It just means they're very unlikely to become that aggressively exuberant, positive, you know, life of the party, captain of the football team, salesman who goes out there, works on commission and knows everybody in town, right? And just thrives off of these social encounters. Rather, they might end up a person who has a wonderful family life, very close friends, and works as an accountant, works in a research lab, right? That they are in their niche that fits their needs and fits their desires. Same way that the highly exuberant, highly positive, outgoing, boisterous child is not going to be the child that we now worry about is, quote unquote, out of control or externalizing now. But unless very terrible things happen in their life, is not going to be the very quiet, shy, bookish person. They'll be mm-hmm. the one that starts the clubs, that has a lot of friends, that if you walk downtown with them, they seem to know 15 different people, right, that <laughs> walk by, right? right? That That is their personality over time. So you can't will the shy child into becoming the life of the party. And you, unless you really work at it, you're not going to force the exuberant child into being the shy, quiet one. And so it creates the boundaries, but it does not dictate the destiny of this child. And now a little break so I can tell you about my sponsor, Helix Sleep makes you have such a delicious night's sleep. It is a mattress that is making it easier to not just get a mattress, because by the way, it comes in a box. Like it just arrived at my door in a box. You open it and out comes an entire mattress that is ready to go. So how do you find the right one? You go to Helix Sleep and it has a quiz that is just a two-minute quiz and it matches your body type and sleep preference to the perfect mattress for you. And everybody's unique. Helix knows that. So they have different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, they have medium, they have firm. These mattresses are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. They're great for spinal alignment and preventing morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus size sleepers. I got a medium mattress because I sleep on my back. I would really like a soft mattress, but I know that my back would absolutely hurt if I did that. So just go to helixsleep.com slash humans and take their two minute sleep quiz and you will get your match with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash humans. So I love so many things, reading, hiking, hanging, seeing family and friends. I'm not so good at planning grocery shopping and cooking. So I really like trying Splendid Spoon because Splendid Spoon makes more time for the stuff you enjoy And you can feel great with plant-based meals that are really not requiring any prep time. Splendid Spoon just sends delicious plant-based ready-to-eat meals and snacks right to your door. So if you are feeling like you want to have healthy foods, but you absolutely don't have the bandwidth to figure out how to find time in the day for all of the shopping and the cooking that you need to do to get everybody fed... Splendid Spoon is a great thing to try. Every meal is 100% plant-based, 
gluten-free and GMO-free. And there are plenty of good breakfasts that are smoothies, grain bowls, things that are really easy, really healthy, and help you get out the door with fewer hassles. Eat well and enjoy more of the summer with Splendid Spoon. So get started today and save on an entire week of ready-made plant-based meals. Just go to splendidspoon.com slash humans for $50 off your first box when you subscribe. That's $50 off at splendidspoon.com slash humans. I have a sneaking suspicion you're going to get into goodness of fit. Yes. (laughs) But in that part of the conversation, I think it's worth mentioning that we can all look at whether or not we put values inside those temperaments and accidentally or inadvertently impose them on our children and how I'm being careful with my words because I certainly don't want to add a a layer of pressure to parents that already know exists, but more that, and this is cultural too, like, especially in the United States, we have particular temperaments that we value more than others and in classrooms and all of those things. So I know that it means a lot to me to unpack temperament because I too, even at this point in my life with this amount of time that I've spent in this field, still catch myself worrying about one temperament versus the Mm -hmm. other. I have those two kids, for example, that just really fall into certain opposing temperament categories. And I think it's really worth taking a second to just think, what's my part in that? So that we can all make sure that our kids know they are deeply loved for who they are, including specifically their temperament. Right. And I think this is where trying to remove what we also often see as the unrealistic expectations of parents, that parents are provided a baby and that the job of the parent is to mold the baby into some image of perfection, of development, and that this image has the best grades, the most friends, the sunniest disposition, the greatest work ethic, right? And that there are different ways of meeting those goals that on the surface look different. And that if, again, using that word of multifinality, that being happy looks different for different children. That if I, as a somewhat introverted but pretends to be extroverted research scientists had to work on Wall Street or work on commission, I would be miserable. Not because there was something wrong with me or wrong with that environment, but the match isn't good. We talk about it sometimes, as you mentioned, as developmental psychologists, goodness of fit. That what is the match between the needs and desires of this individual and the environment in which they're in? And one of the things that parents do or can do is work with the child. And I put work in quotations because, of course, the parent is the parent. But helping the child find their niche, find their place in life that leads to positive outcomes and happy outcomes that are not dictated by the needs and desires of one form of achievement. And I talked earlier about our current culture, this Western notion. And that's where I think it's really important that even though temperament is thought to be biological, there are brain regions associated with different temperamental profiles. There are stress hormones associated with different temperament profiles, cardiac activity, the way, you know, electrical activity of the brain. But it's all embedded with our culture and our historical time frame. So in my lab, I study kids who are behaviorally inhibited. So the textbook behaviorally inhibited child, when they're placed in a new or novel situation, so let's say kindergarten, first day, in the playground. They tend to freeze. They tend to back up. And even when other children might ask them to play, they often refuse because it's overwhelming. And that child is the child parents 
tend to worry about. I've never had a parent come to my lab and say, I'm really worried about Melissa. She has so many friends. She's in three different clubs. She's always going from one house to the other. Everybody keeps inviting her to parties. She is just a mile a minute. They don't worry about that. They come to me and say, I'm worried about Jason. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He tends to read quietly in his room. When I try to get him to join a club or join a team, he says he doesn't want to. Or when I push him to, he sits in the corner the whole time. We as a society, we worry about the inhibited child, not the exuberant child. Although, when you look, just like inhibited children are at increased risk for social anxiety, the exuberant child is at risk for risk-taking and risky behavior, including drug use. So they're both, right, but we don't worry about that when they're little because the exuberant, bubbly, positive, socially engaged child is what we've been sort of built into. This is an ideal. So the biology works with the culture. So for example, there's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania on the other side of the state named Dr. Xinyan Chen. And he's done work in China uh, looking at behavioral inhibition. And here in the US, when we see a behaviorally inhibited child, he, he or she tends to be at increased risk for social anxiety, for poor peer relationships, and for feeling isolated. Again, because if kids come up to you and ask you to play and you keep saying no, at some point they stop asking. Right. When he went both to urban China and, and into the more agricultural areas, he found there, that connection wasn't there. Behaviorally inhibited Chinese children in the 90s were rated as leaders. They were popular among their peers and teachers rated them as their best students and they didn't have increased risk for anxiety. It was very different. And the notion was it fit the cultural expectation, the quiet child who fit in and could work within the community. And what's really interesting is he went back 15 years later, 20 years later, and he went back again to urban communities and rural communities. And in the rural communities, he found the same thing that he found in the 1990s. But in the urban communities, the behaviorally inhibited children now looked like Western children, children in the United States. So you can't argue that the biology changed over 15 years or the genetics changed over the course of 15 years. But the way the culture reacted to the biology, reacted to their genetics, that changed. So the child who would have been held up as a model to peers 15, 20 years later was now seen as a problem and now showed the same risk for poor peer relationships and higher anxiety that you see in Boston, Los Angeles. DC in the US. And so that's where I think it's always important to make that point that just because something is biologically based does not mean it is not shaped by the environment. That the outcome isn't shaped by the environment. So just the same way we can think about what we look like physically, being blonde and blue-eyed versus having being a brunette with brown eyes, that's genetically determined the society's response to that and how that shapes a child's developmental trajectories, that's not biologically determined. And now we're going to take a little break so I can tell you about my sponsors. That's it is a bar that has nothing in it, but real fruit. That's it. These fruit bars are the opposite of that stuff in the snack aisle that sometimes looks pretty exciting, but incredibly confusing with mile-long ingredients lists with artificial additives that you can't even pronounce. But that's it. Fruit bars are absolutely the opposite, made from just one ingredient, which is 100% real fruit. That's it is giving Raising Good Humans listeners a special discount. Our favorite in this house is the apple mango bar. The bar contains one whole apple and one whole mango. That's it. 
And by eating this one bar, you get the same nutritional benefits you would get if you were eating those two fruits separately. And sometimes, let's be honest, we're in a rush and we just need to grab something with lots of fiber and nutrients, but we don't have time to sit down and cut up those fruits and have that snack. So That's It is giving Raising Good Humans listeners a special discount. So if you're looking to try these fruit bars for you and your family, head over to that'sitfruit.com slash raisinggoodhumans and use the code humans to get 20% off your order. That's humans to get 20% off your order. Slumberkins is an emotional wellness company focused on raising the next generation of caring, confident, and resilient children. Come on, that's a really good mission. Each collection of Slumberkins teaches a set of skills like self-esteem, stress relief, authenticity, growth mindset, and more. They have these creature collections And alongside them, there are board books that teach age-appropriate, tangible lessons in a way that kids understand. Slumberkins was created by a therapist and educator, and it uses therapeutic techniques to help children master social-emotional skills. Slumberkins was created by moms, for moms, and trusted by thousands. I just taught a mindfulness course for parents. And one of the students in the class gave Slumberkins as a suggestion of something that you can do to help navigate mindfulness and meditation practice with your little ones. I am so into Slumberkins and you will love it. Use the code humans at checkout for 15% off your first order. Visit www.slumberkins.com dot com to learn more. How can parents get a hold? Of, I mean, we kind of all know at this point in our lives how we bend. Yes. So, and if not, it's a great time to, to check in with yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the research mm-hmm. related to your temperament and your child's temperament and what parents who find themselves with a child with a vastly different temperament can do to support them. Right. And this is sort of, I think, always the real core issue of parenting. At least I'll say that as a parent myself. So I have a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old. And it's that understanding of that some role, at some point, your role is not just to shelter and care for and love and nurture this child. That happens throughout their lifetime. But part of your job is to support this person in becoming who or she will be as a person. And that can be quite different than you are, whether it be in their life goals and the types of careers they want to have or the types of lives they build for themselves. And some of that is built from their early temperament and then the personality that emerges from that. And just like Dr. Kagan said that temperament kind of creates the boundaries. I think for parents, it's understanding what are the boundaries for my child and how can I support them and being the best version of themselves that's most adaptive to the environments they're in and to the goals they wish to have for themselves. So, and that is always the tricky thing. It's easier said than done. When it comes to the type, sort of the type of children I tend to interact with, which are the shy and reticent children, they are indeed at increased risk for social anxiety disorders or for being highly socially reticent. But it is not a given. And what we tend to find is that children who are supported in exploring as at their own pace their social world and learning a couple of really important things about the social world. One, that it is not inherently dangerous. Often children retreat from the world because they're worried that it's threatening, that something bad will happen. So they need to learn that that's not always the case. And in fact, most of the time, good things happen when you engage with the social world. 
two, that they can learn to predict what's happening around them. What we tend to find is that anxious individuals, children and adults, and behaviorally inhibited children have difficulty with things that are unpredictable or things they can't control very well. And if you ever think about what's the most unpredictable, uncontrollable thing in your world, it's often the other people around them. So inhibited children tend to retreat to activities that are controllable and predictable. Often you see them in the sciences for that very reason, or in the individual arts, painting, as opposed to the performing arts where you're working with groups. And third, that they can regulate for themselves their exposure to and then the quiet times that they need in order to, for lack of a better word, recover from recharge. recharge. Mm -hmm. And so for often the role of the parent or the caregiver is to help that child learn. Yes, they have the skills. Yes, there is some predictability and novelty. And yes, you can help control that. It's not all or none. And what we found in research is that for the vast majority of children, having social experiences gives them all of those skills. So we found that children who are behaviorally inhibited but go to preschool or go to regular clubs or activities are less anxious two, three years later than children who stayed at home, either with their parent or a nanny, or didn't have these extracurriculars. Children who stayed at home but then went into kindergarten look less shy, less reticent by second or third grade because they're learning. They're learning these skills. They're picking up patterns. They're figuring out when they want to engage and when they want quiet time. What we find is the most difficult is children who are pushed to the extremes. So let's say, for example, you have a four-year-old who's quite shy and you sign him up for gymnastics. And the first gymnastic lessons are lots of kids, they're loud, they're boisterous, they're jumping up and around. That can be really overwhelming for the inhibited child. And you can pretty much expect this child might go to the corner and not engage. They might cry. And for the parent to say, oh, don't worry, honey, we never have to do this again. We won't come back. We'll never do anything like this. Or the parent who says, Why are you over there in the corner crying? I signed you up for this. Go and pushes them either literally or metaphorically too Mm -hmm. fast into the center. Right. Um, Both of those approaches tend to reinforce the anxiety. One, because the child never learns to overcome that initial fear. Or two, because the child is so overwhelmed that they freeze and they retreat back even more. So in many ways for the child, it's the middle road. The, yeah, it was a little scary today. Do you want me to sit next to you just for a little bit? Or do you want to watch today? And next week we can decide if you want to participate. And scaffolding and building that go at their pace, but go, right? So we don't, necessarily want them to stay in one place. It's the, you know, the other example I sometimes use with parents is swim lessons. You don't take a child to the deepest, deepest part of the pool and just throw them in. At the same time, we don't say you'll never have to touch water because it's not safe for the child. You don't want a child going through life who can't swim. That's dangerous. You don't want a child going through life who can't engage with the social world. That's psychologically dangerous, right? And so you want to equip the child with the skills they need to keep their head above water without insisting that they become an Olympic gold medalist swimmer. This reminds me of sometimes parents will say, well, all this like softness with kids, I was just thrown into the water and I was fine. And it's like, that might've worked for your temperament. Right. That might've been okay for you. For another kid, that might send them out of the water for indefinitely. Right. <laughs> and this is a great example of 
I really like the way you framed not going in the water ever, not learning how to swim ever is dangerous. Right. And, you know, but we can meet kids at the pace that works for their temperament. And that's how you can find that sweet spot. I want to use another example that I'm curious about Mm -hmm. because it's coming up on summer. So this has been a question that's emerged for kids, particularly post-pandemic, but I think this happened before parents Mm -hmm. who are thinking about summer camp, for example, and they have kids who are by nature, not wanting to leave the house or go do stuff or be away from home. And they say, I'm not going to summer camp. Right. And one of the responses is, okay, if you don't want to go, you don't have to go. And another response is, you go and I'll pick you up if you don't like it. Right. And then another response is, you'll go because I went and that's what's happening and you'll suck it up. And I wonder if you can use the same swim analogy with camp for the child who has this more reticent temperament. Right. And this is where I think the long game, if you're a child who's been at home most of the time, has a very small social circle, going from that to a camp away from home with no one you've ever met and 500 kids running around probably is a big leap. Often, you know, after school activities, day camp, often is more appropriate for the younger child, right? You're not going to send a five-year-old to sleep away camp, right? Although in the past they used to, right? Like, but (laughs) if you go to after-school camp, right? Or you do the local Y camp in the summer where mom drops you off and picks you up and then you build up to that. And then you go to the weekend Y camps, right? I remember when I was younger as a Girl Scout, we had weekend camping trips, right? And so you build up to... You're going to be away for a week or two weeks or three weeks. So that's one. Uh Again, that gradual learning of the skills you need. I don't know what I would do if somebody told me as part of my job, you're being detailed to a different university with people you've never met and you're going to live there a month and you're going to do your work. I'd be panicked and I would start Googling. Who am I going to meet? Where's my office going to be? Who am I going to, who am I going to have lunch with? Right. Yeah. All of the things that kids worry about, I would worry about. If I was being sent somewhere where I know a couple of people that I've visited before, that I have a sense of what my role is and that I have a job there, that's a lot different. Right. And I think it's equipping the children just as we would want to be equipped. Another thing that I found, and it's funny how. I, as a parent, would forget this sometimes, that my goal was to pick an activity that my child would enjoy, not necessarily me, right? Uh So one of my children loves writing, wants to be a journalist, loves creative writing, and went to a summer camp that focused on writing. And some performance, they would write the play and perform the play, but she was really there for the writing component. That probably would not have been the camp I would have enjoyed the most, but she loved it. Had I forced her to go to, let me pick at random soccer camp, she probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. And she probably wouldn't have made as good friends because again, we talked about earlier, goodness of fit. The kids who tended to go to this writing camp were the kids who tended to reflect her interest and her tempo. And so she fit in and made friends where had I insisted that, oh, you should be more athletic. And I sent her to a soccer camp. She may have made good friends. She may have learned to enjoy it, but she may not have. And so that might've been a situation where I would have helped her pick the writing camp, because I knew she'd love it, and maybe talk to her about, why don't we do a couple days of soccer just to see, so that she pushes herself a little bit and sees that she will enjoy it, right? Again, letting them understand through evidence what they do and do not like, as opposed to assuming they won't like it, uh, or Mm -hmm. assuming they will, 
you know, I think sometimes that happens with parents who are career oriented and education oriented. You will go to this school, you will have this type of career. This is the path that success dictates, um, where there's a lot of different pathways. And that part of the goal for the for the parent is helping the child come to understand what their successful pathway is. And then we talked a lot so far about the anxious child, the child that needs the nudge. And part of that is because that's the type of work I do. So that's what I see. But if you think of the really exuberant child, the highly bold, positive child, that seems what could go wrong. But with exuberance and boldness, often sometimes comes risk taking and Mm -hmm. dominance. So for that child, sometimes it's teaching them to take a step back, to count to 10 and think about what they're going to do before they do it. Letting others take the leadership role, practicing being part of the group as opposed to being the one out front. So it's not to say that one type of child needs help and another child doesn't. And Mm -hmm. oh, you poor parent, you ended up with a child that needs help. All children need help. All children need scaffolding. It's just that what it'll look like will differ. Because if not, you're going to have the kid who jumps off the roof just to see what it's like. Because, right. right, isn't that exciting? Look at the rush, right? Let's go out there and see what the world has. And so for that child, it's a question of let's create a little bit of inhibitory control. Let's think about what are the different good paths and not so good paths that can come out of just being gangbusters about everything you do. And that even that child needs to rest a little. Right. So even if it seems like they, you know, want more, more, more and to participate more, more, more and to get to try more, more, more that they have the scaffolding to say, you know, we all need to take a break sometimes. And separately, I'd like to expand a little bit on helping with inhibitory control Mm -hmm. for that particular child, because those are skills that are teachable and it may not occur if you have a kid who sort of feels like all of these things are going to serve them to also give them the tools so that they don't accidentally not learn about the appropriate stress right. response. Right. Right. Because there's a, there's a fine line sometimes between boldness and bouncing off the walls, right? Yes. Which often comes to a head as the child progresses through elementary school, as the expectations for this child is to be part of the group and work as a unit and not shout out, not be the one who always gets their way or sort of pushes, but sometimes is pushed by others. I think, you know, when I talk to parents of inhibited children, it's often give them a sense of control, give them things that they can be in charge of, that they are helping shape. Sometimes it's, as simple as when they're little, what are you going to wear today? And you give it to them as choices. Do you want to wear this outfit or this outfit? And as they become older and becomes more age appropriate, you you give them more choices and or they can generate their choices. Do you want to join this group or that group? As opposed to you don't have to join anything, right? For the exuberant child, it has a different tone but it's still the parent's scaffolding, right? You want to do 17 different things. Let's pick one or two. Let's pick an activity that's group-based where you can learn to be part of the team. And let's maybe, maybe we want to pick an activity where it's something you can really focus on yourself and some of the things you're interested in so that they learn that their role in the environment and the social world sometimes is social, but sometimes is independent that they are not dependent on others for their own internal life and activities. That sometimes intervention for the shy child is to coax them into the group, while the intervention for the exuberant and bold child is to pull them back a little bit. And you, and you can say, hey, I noticed that you got to pick the last three games you were all playing. You pick the blocks, 
you picked the board game, you decided what roles people were playing in the fantasy game. You know what? Why don't we see if somebody else has an idea about what we're going to do next? And that's hard. And that is a form of inhibitory control because you're learning to, for lack of a better word, pull back what you want to do and hold on to that until it's your turn again. And at the same time, participate in what someone else might have picked and helping shape that. In, in the classroom, often, you know, it's sort of teachers I've seen use management techniques of having something physical and tangible to hold to know when it is your turn to lead or when it is your turn to contribute, right? So you make it external to the child. Okay. So it's physically. Like, I mean, like a puppet ear or a, do you know what I mean when I say yes. that? Does, yes, you know exactly. I mean? Yeah. Like who's the talker right now and who's the listener? (laughs) And sometimes it's forcing one child to be the talker and it's forcing the other child to be the listener. Right. So it's following the child's lead. It's not insisting they be someone who they're not. But at the same time, helping them mold their underlying temperament to fit their environment, to fit their long-term trajectories so that this bold exuberant person becomes a leader in the arts or in business or at the university or this quiet contemplative person becomes a contributor to all of those areas but just in different ways that just like I would never want to work on commission cuz I would never pay the rent right like I can't go up to somebody and just say, hey, I have the most wonderful thing in the world. Let me convince you to do this, right? I wouldn't force that person to work in my role because it wouldn't be a good fit for them. Okay, so for parents who are hearing this, they're now thinking, okay, I my kid maybe needs a little more inhibitory control or maybe right. my kid needs a little practice stepping into uncomfortable situations mm-hmm. when their child or teen responds with displeasure, which they dis- might, which they might let's right. walk through. that. Right. And I think that's the, where I said earlier, the danger of we sometimes in the language of the literature that I read and I work in, we, we tend to label those and it, it's a judgment. Science is never without judgment. We tend to call that overprotective or over solicitous, mm-hmm. that they are so concerned about their child feeling discomfort, feeling distress, that they either prevent that distress, they smooth the path for their child, so it is always, you know, a bed of roses for them. Or, or they swoop in so quickly that the child never learns to understand their level of distress, understand how to deal with it, and understand when it's manageable and when then they need to call in for help. Again, that's like the swimming skill. When am I okay? When is it something that I can overcome? I can swim from this side of the pool to the next versus this is too much. I need help. I'm out in the middle of the lake and I can't swim all the way back to the shore. If if a child never learns to gauge that, the parent can protect them only for so long. Because at some point they will turn 20 years old. As much as I thought this would never happen, I have a 20-year-old who will be right. 21 in September. I will I have a 17-year-old who will be a legal adult in January. As much as I would want to protect them and buffer them. At some point I'm I'm going to be physically incapable of doing that if not already. So you're you have to give them the skills to deal with that discomfort. And so yes, they will feel distressed. Yes, that first day at gymnastics, they may not feel great about it. And you're there to help them, to talk to them about it, to let them know that there are people there to help them. But not to take them home and say, baby, we're never going to do that ever again. Don't you worry. Because at some point, you won't be there to take them home. Yeah. For the exuberant child, there might come a time when somebody says, 
back off. You're being bossy or you're not following the rules. And that's not going to feel good for them. And the exuberant child can have poor peer relationships, just like the overly inhibited child can, because peers have expectations. And distress is not a bad thing. We need to learn to deal with it and have it. The question is manageable stress, age-appropriate stress. So just like we wouldn't put a five-year-old into sleepaway camp these days with no support, because that's not manageable for them, we typically wouldn't say that for a typically developing healthy child, do you really want to go to college? Don't you want to stay home? Wouldn't you feel better if you just stayed here? Right. Or, right. So it has to be age appropriate because then that child can't become a person. And we know life has a wide variety of challenges and interactions and joys and plateaus and peaks and valleys and things that we love and things that we're proud of and the things that are really we hate and that we wish didn't happen. And our goal as parents is to help them deal with all those. Because those things will come, no matter how involved the parent is, no matter how sensitive the parent is, no matter how in lockstep the parent is with a child, how well attached they are, those things will come. And the question becomes, given our child's temperament, how do we best equip them to deal with those challenges such that the equipment for child A won't be the same as the equipment for child B? That's a beautiful way to close this because as a parent, if you have more than one child, the equipment is different. And so that's why temperament matters. Yeah. The joke among temperament researchers is that people who don't believe in temperament start to believe in it when they have their second child. Exactly. (laughs) And then this happened to me to some extent, you get to know the rhythms of your first child. You get to know what works, what doesn't work. You think you've gotten a handle on quote unquote parenting, right? (sighs) This is what parenting is. And then the second child comes and they're very different. And so you're still the same person. You're still the parent, but your parenting has to shift to meet this different child, both because they're at a different age, but because they have a different temperament. So the parent learns new parenting and that's okay. You're not supposed to have like figured it all out with the first child. Or maybe ever. (laughs) Or ever, because that first child will only be five for so long. Pretty soon, they're going to be 15 and 25. And your parenting has to change with them. That the scaffolds and the freedoms will change from five to 15 to 25. And it has to, and it would, and it's a good thing. It's just this evolution that happens over time. That you blink your eye. And you turn around and it's done, or this stage is done. It's never truly done. 